The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And then the devil left him. And behold, angels came and were ministering to him. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to you, Lord Christ. Thank you for joining us. Let me pray for us. Father, we do pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in the midst of a sermon series on the seven deadly sins, and last week was greed. I told you about having my truck broken in while being at a yoga class and chasing the thief after he drove away with several shotguns, which raised all sorts of questions for you. One of those was somebody asking me, of all the people that that guy could have robbed in Austin, how many of them do you think were a pastor doing yoga with shotguns in his car? Which is a good question. Another was, do you think God has ridiculous things happen to you so that you'll have sermon illustrations? Which I've wondered for years. And then finally, let me get this straight. Barefoot and unarmed, you chased after a criminal who had just stolen a gun from you. And I said, yes. And they said, that was kind of stupid. And I said, yes, it was. And this was a conversation I had with my wife. (laughs) But today, we're moving on from greed and talking about gluttony and lust. So just in case uh, I didn't offend you or or put you off last week by talking about how you spend your money, today we're going to be talking about how you eat and how you live out your sexual life. And these are arguably the two most uncomfortable vices because there's so much shame and embarrassment associated with food and sex. And that's true because they both deal with our bodies and we aren't comfortable with our bodies. The scriptures use this phrase, nakedness without shame. It's in Genesis chapter two. It's the foremost biblical description of intimacy. And those words in Genesis chapter two, which portrays us before sin enters the world and into us and wrecks all of our relationships, relationship with God, with others, with ourselves, and nakedness without shame no longer exists for us. No longer are we fully seen inside and out, body and soul, and known without any fear of ridicule, rejection, or harm. No longer does that happen for us. 
Now there are things to fear. Now there is ridicule and now there is rejection. And we especially hide now and keep secrets and tell lies about what we do with our bodies. The scriptures are clear, food and sex and the pleasure that they provide, they were given to us by God, created by him. And good things, they're inescapable and essential parts of our lives as human beings. But what happens when that pleasure becomes distorted and even disordered? And then we become disordered in our hearts and distorted in our lives. And how can that distortion be healed? So three points this morning. Number one, the goal of both, lust and gluttony. And then secondly, the lies behind both. And then finally, the answer to both. First of all, the goal of both lust and gluttony. I'm combining these two vices in part because they're only six weeks in Lent, six Sundays in Lent, and so we have to combine two. But also, many theologians throughout the centuries have connected these two because they both deal with physical pleasure. And what happens, not only when we become distorted, but when our hearts become disordered, And I told you about that word disordered last week. It has a long history in the church, going back at least to Augustine, who talked about a hierarchy in the human heart, and that there are things that we are to love above other things. There are things that we are to love and to cling to more than others. There are other things, good things even, that we're to love, but we're not to love as much and to hold far more open-handed. And when that hierarchy in our hearts becomes disordered and we love good things too much, and we love some good things too little, then chaos erupts in our life. And we damage ourselves physically, spiritually, emotionally, and not just ourselves, but everyone else all around us too. And that's what happens with David in our Old Testament passage. It's this infamous story about Bathsheba. Anyone named Bathsheba here? No. Just like last week, no one named Ananias or Sapphira. No one from towns called Sodom or Gomorrah. It's like we're on this tour of all the unusable names in the Bible these past couple of weeks. And Bathsheba is one, though it shouldn't be, because she's not the villain of the story, even though her name gets ruined for all of human history. I've heard sermons, and maybe you have as well, that try and blame Bathsheba for everything that happens here. They speculate about where she was bathing and whether or not she enticed David. And if you've heard anything like that, before I go on, I need to just pause and say I'm sorry. That on behalf of the church, I am sorry because that's just utter stupidity because David's the villain here. The text doesn't say she lay with him. It says he lay with her. So don't let silly cliches like it takes two to tango or something like that cloud your judgment on this passage or in other situations that you encounter in life. Because of course, no one is sinless and no one's completely innocent. But in many situations, there is one person primarily at fault and that is David here, not Bathsheba. She is not to be blamed because of where she was or what she was wearing or how beautiful she was. David's name deserved to be ruined, not hers. Because notice what David does. And also, notice the details around everything that he does. It tells us, the text says, that it's late in the afternoon, and he's been on his couch throughout the middle of the day. Should he be on his couch in the middle of the day? He's king. Where should he be? With his army, fighting the Ammonites. But he's on his couch in the middle of the day, and he sounds bored and listless and aimless. And so sin chooses an aim for him. And here are the verbs behind what he does. First of all, it says that he sees, just simply that, verse two, that he, he sees, he saw a woman bathing. 
And that should sound to you like something. It should sound like Genesis 3 and Eve. And when she saw that the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that it was good for food and that it was delight for the eyes. For both David and for Eve, looking or gazing, dealing, dwelling with their eyes, and then in their imagination, that's where temptation starts for them. And that's also true for Jesus. In our gospel reading that Brent read, did you notice where Satan finally takes Jesus? Up to a high mountain, and then what does he do? He just says, look. He shows them all the kingdoms of the world, all their glory, all their beauty, and he just says, look, imagine. So too here with David. And then David inquired about her. In other words, he, he gives his imagination a little bit more to dwell upon. And then he lay with her, and then Bathsheba left. And why did she leave? Because he was done with her. So saw, inquired, sent, took, lay with her, and then discarded her. And then tried to cover it all up. He, he calls in Uriah from the battlefield and tries to persuade him to sleep with his wife so he can cover up the pregnancy. That doesn't work, and then he just has him killed. And all for the physical pleasure of sex, which again is a good thing. It's a gift from God, but it's not the greatest thing. And here it had moved to the highest position in the hierarchy of his heart, and it dominated him. It began to rule him. He began to feel as if he needed that above all else. And that's what lust does, but it's also what gluttony does. And that's the connection between the two. Both vices have as their goal my physical pleasure, not someone else's pleasure, not someone else's needs, not somebody else's well-being, not even my own well-being, just my physical pleasure. And lust is the easier of these two vices for us to recognize because we're more familiar with what it looks like. Gluttony, less so. In fact, we probably think that it's simply an overweight person who eats too much or, or, or maybe someone who drinks too much, but that's far too simple. Do you remember the 1990s movie, Seven with Brad Pitt and Morgan Freeman, Kevin Spacey, this horror thriller movie. It's a disturbing film. It's about this serial killer who takes all of the seven deadly sins, each to their inevitable end, and then kills people through them. And you remember what he does with gluttony? He ties a man's hands and feet and then chains him to a table and forces him to eat spaghetti at gunpoint until he dies. And it's gruesome. It's a terrible scene. I wish I hadn't seen it. It's gruesome, but it's also far too simplistic. Rebecca Conan Dick DeYoung, in her book, Glittering Vices, which we've been telling you all about for several weeks, she follows Gregory the Great, and she uses an acronym to describe gluttony. It's the acronym FRESH, F-R-E-S-H, FRESH. She says a glutton is someone who eats too fastidiously, too ravenously, too excessively, too sumptuously, or too hastily. Fresh. And notice only one of those types concerns eating too much, which is excessive. And by hastily, she means someone who always has food on their mind, always has a snack in hand, or who's always in the first of the line to get food, and who always rushes to the table, not waiting for anyone else to begin or even to get there, and finishes long before everyone else, and then is ready to go before they even begin to eat. And we see this each and every Sunday when all of our children nearly trample us as they run for the donuts clear across the courtyard. And that's it, hastily but also ravenously, and this is someone who eats like they're starving even though they aren't. And they eat as quickly as possible in order to get as much as the pleasurable dish as they want without somebody taking it, because that's their fear. 
of somebody else taking what it is that they want. And then finally, sumptuously, by this she refers to a person who primarily eats to feel full. This person seeks the pleasure of satiety or fullness and chooses rich and filling foods in order to get that feeling of just feeling full by food. But I don't think any of those are are the way that Austin in particular struggles especially with gluttony. I think it's more the fastidious type. And do you know this word, fastidious? We haven't had a word for the day in a while, so let's have a word for the day. On the count of three, we'll say the word fastidious together. Ready? One, two, three. Fastidious. I love our words for the day. My boys hate them, but I like these words. But fastidious means to be very concerned with accuracy and detail. And in Austin, we just don't like food. We like it excellent. We like it interesting. We like it creative with all sorts of complexity around it. So we have craft beer and we have mixologists. When did mixologist even become a word? We have mixologists who create creative cocktails. And then there's the question of farm to table and free range and hormone free and gluten free and something new called um, biodynamic. Have you seen that in the restaurants? Biodynamic food literally means life changing. Go look it up. It has, I'm, I'm not kidding, it has spiritual connotations with it. It's like this sort of pantheist movement where they're planting the, the crops at a certain period of time and they're being raised and it's supposed to be some sort of religious experience eating the food. By the way, they're borrowing our capital there when they're talking about that. I'll talk about that later, but biodynamic. And so we have to understand that it's not about allergies or it's not even about health, but it's about delicacy for us. There is a gluttony of delicacy as much as there's a gluttony of excess. In other words, a hyper-concern for accuracy and detail in food. We won't eat it. And of course, thankfully, C.S. Lewis wrote about a gluttony of delicacy. So I want to read to you from him. Again, this week, screw tape letters. Last week, I told you the screw tape letters are this imaginary correspondence between two de- devils. One named Screwtape writing to a lower ranking devil about how he is to keep one particular soul away from God so that they can feed upon this soul in eternity. And this is what he says about a woman plagued by the gluttony of delicacy. See if you can relate. He says, she is a positive terror to hostesses and servants alike. She's always turning from what has been offered to her to say with a demure little sigh and smile, oh, please, please, all I want is a cup of tea. Weak, but not too weak. And the teeniest, weeniest bit of really crisp toast. Do you see? Because what she wants is smaller and less costly than what has been set before her, she never recognizes as gluttony her determination to get what she wants, however troublesome it may be to others. The real value of the quite unobtrusive work on this old woman can be gauged by the way in which her belly dominates her whole life. The woman is in what may be called an all-I-want state of mind. All-I-want state of mind. All-I-want is all that matters. That's David too. Because that's behind both lust and gluttony and all their forms, the drive to secure some certain physical pleasure for yourself, regardless of the cost to yourself or to others. So what about you? What about us? Point two, here are the lies that lie behind both lust and gluttony. And there are many. We only have time for a couple. But one I mentioned last week, and that's the 
the lie of ownership. Again, I quoted to you from the screw tape letters where worm, or screw tape writes to worm when saying, the joke is that the word mine, do you remember this? The joke is that the word mine in its fully possessive sense cannot be uttered by a human being about anything. Ultimately, we can't say that anything is ours. So, so this money that is mine, that I've worked so hard for, that I've sacrificed so much for, that I've worked years and years to acquire, that money is mine. Or these possessions, they are mine. Or this food, that is mine. This drink is mine to do with it what I want. Or my body is my own to make my own choices and my own decisions about my body. Or this other person's body that, that I look at or that I, that I touch sometimes. That body, in those moments, that body is mine. And again, no, it's the lie of ownership. And our New Testament reading from 1 Corinthians 6 makes that very, very clear, this lie of ownership, and speaking about both food and sex. And in this passage, Paul quotes back to this church some of these misguided slogans that he's heard from them. And the first is, all things are lawful for me. It's the very first thing said in verse 12. This is a slogan, and it's a corruption of the theology and the teaching, the biblical teaching Paul has offered to him, and he's taught them essential, necessary truths. He's taught them that there's nothing so dark and sinful that they could do or become that would take them so far from God that his grace could not reach them and rescue them and bring them back and forgive them, that there is nothing too dark or too sinful, or too broken, not to be overcome by God's grace. God's grace in Christ can overcome anything. Anything can be forgiven. Anything can be healed. And I have to emphasize that because we're talking about food and sex, and there's so much shame associated with it. His grace in Christ to you can overcome anything. And Paul taught them that. And also taught them that once they've been forgiven of their sins and fully accepted and completely loved and accepted by God, not because of what they've done or what they haven't done, but because of who Jesus is and what he has done for them. Therefore, there's nothing they have to do, no religious laws, no moral things that they have to do in order to be assured that God loves them and accepts them. He taught them all of that, all true, and here's the corruption. And that is, they began to say, well, if all that's true, then we can live however we want. If we've already been assured of heaven, if we've already been forgiven of our sins, assured of heaven, then we can live like hell. And they did. They did. And so Paul's response is in verse 12. And he basically says, if you do that, all of the freedom that you've gained in Christ will be lost and you will be dominated. That's the word. You will be dominated by the sin you give yourself over to. You will be ruled. You will be owned. And he especially mentions food and sex because they had so many twisted and shallow ideas about both, especially that what they did with their body, whether food or sex, what they did with their body, it didn't touch their soul because they thought wrongly that their souls and their body were completely separate and totally divided. So what they did in their body didn't touch their souls. And if you've heard anything emphasized here while worshiping at All Saints, it's this, that our bodies and our souls, yes, are distinct, but they're never fully and completely separated. In fact, they are inextricably and intimately intertwined, our souls with our bodies. And hear me here, so that what we do with our bodies can truly and significantly determine who finally owns our souls. What we do with our bodies can significantly determine who finally owns our souls. 
And as Screwtape laughingly emphasizes, it's never us. It's never us. Which is why Paul says at the end, you are not your own. You don't belong to yourself. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. And of course, he's speaking to Christians. And of course, the price paid for us is Jesus. But the point is, everybody's owned. Everybody's got a master. And I don't know if there's anything in our modern culture and society that we don't want to believe more than that. And we hear it. We hear that resistance in all of our own slogans about food and sex. We hear things like, oh, it's just sex. It's just sex. Or it's, it's just pornography. It's not really hurting anybody. It's not like I'm acting out or living out what I'm looking at. Or if it's between two consenting adults and no one's getting hurt, then really what's the harm in that? And what if, just what if, all the supposedly innocent, harmless, casual treatments of our body is actually as enslaving as Paul says? Or what if there's actually harm being done that we can't fully appreciate right now? What if actually casual sex and pornography and even something like strip clubs, that they actually dehumanize us all the same? And by casual sex, I simply mean Sex between two people, not in marriage, not male, not female, people who aren't committed to sharing and entrusting all of themselves, sharing and entrusting their souls, but they're just attempting to use one another's body for their own physical pleasure. What if that actually dehumanizes us? There's a pastor uh, who Rebecca DeYoung quotes in her book, Glittering Vices, who asked the question, which I'd never thought about, why do all exotic dancers not use their real name? Why do they all have stage names? And this is what he says. He says, it's because lust dehumanizes the other. In fact, lust needs to dehumanize the other. Lust doesn't work when the other person is fully human. A man leering at an exotic dancer doesn't want, her, doesn't want to know her real name. A great way to empty out all these clubs would be to stand up before a dancer was about to come on and say, yes, this is Sultry Susan, but her real name is Mary Walensky. She has four brothers and sisters. Her parents divorced when she was five. Her mother is an alcoholic. She's been married twice. Her last husband beat her. She has two kids and is struggling to get by. She likes dogs and would love to be a dental hygienist someday. That would empty out the room. An introduction like that would short-circuit the lust because it would put intimacy and humanity back into the picture. Lust doesn't want the full humanity of the person with her needs and her vulnerabilities. Lust wants low lights, a haze of alcohol, and lots of lies. And he's right. It's brilliant. It's true. I wish I had said it. You know... It's what Paul emphasizes here when he says, you are not your own. And, and the bodies that you look at or the bodies that you touch, they are not yours. They don't ultimately belong to you. You cannot treat them as human flesh. They are human beings who belong to someone, who are loved and precious to someone. And God himself desires for them to belong to him and ultimately to him alone and not to you and not to anything or anyone in this world that would harm their souls through their bodies. And so now, what is the answer to both? To both lust as well as to gluttony. 
And the answer comes to, in response to one other lie that's essential to both, and this is what it is. And that is, this will fill me up, this thing. This will fill me up. This will satisfy me. This physical thing, whether food or flesh, it will make me full and satisfied. And no, it won't. It will not. Which is why Frederick Beekner, a pastor and author, said this. He said, a glutton is one who raids the icebox for a cure for spiritual malnutrition. And he says, sex is sinful to the degree that instead of drawing you closer to other human beings in their humanness, it unites bodies but it leaves the lives inside them hungrier and more alone than before. Because both lust and gluttony, they're incredibly isolating. They have to be. Because their goal is the self, the physical pleasure of the self at all costs. And so the more that you indulge these and the more you give themselves to these yourself over, the more alone you will be, the more empty you will be. Whether the food you demand or the drink that you crave and rely upon or the sight that you go to, or the person's body that you touch and that you can't quit, though you know that you need to quit it, none of it will satisfy you. None of it will finally fill you because you were made for more. You were made for far more. Which is why Jesus says, man does not live by bread alone. Man does not live by anything physical in this world. Man cannot live by sex alone. And if you try, you will die. You will wither spiritually. And so here's the answer to both lust and gluttony. Very simply, communion. Communion. Big C and little c. Because what we do at the altar table each and every week is the antithesis to both. For in the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread that was more than bread. He took wine that was more than wine. And that bread that's more than bread, he broke it. And that wine that's more than wine, he poured it out. Because what he was doing when he broke that bread and he poured out that wine was an anticipation of the cross in which his body would be broken truly, his blood would be shed in order that he might give himself fully and completely to us, his life, his love, his presence, his very life. He did not feed himself, but he broke himself, poured himself out to give it to others and to fill us with himself. Which is why Alexander Schmem and this man, this man that we quote from time to time, he so famously said, man is a hungry being. You are hungry and you can't escape it. Man is a hungry being, but he is hungry for God. All desires are finally a desire for him. All desires are finally a desire for him. And without him, no desire will ever be filled. It'll never be enough. And so Jesus lived. He went to the cross he died bearing the, the penalty for our sins and all of our pain and shame. And then he was raised in order that he might give himself to us that he might be enough. So do you believe that God can be enough? And do you want to be satisfied? If you do, give yourself to Jesus first and foremost. Seek to be satisfied and filled with him more so than anything else and nothing more than him, nothing more than his word and his grace and his love and his wisdom to you because man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes forth from the mouth of God. And lastly, here's where I close. Don't do it alone. You cannot do it alone because lust and gluttony, they thrive in secrecy and isolation, lust especially. You cannot defeat the vice of lust by yourself. You need a community, a community of openness and accountability. 
And this church can and should be that community for you. This is why we have a men's sexual integrity group that is available to you and other women's groups and the pastors and other leaders as well. And if you come and avail yourself of us and what we're offering in the community and the openness, you will not be shamed. You will not be shamed. You will be fed God's word of grace and healing. And you may know this, but Augustine's greatest spiritual struggle was the vice of lust. And he famously prayed in his confessions, Lord, grant me chastity, but not yet. Did you know that? Lord, grant me chastity, but not yet. And do you know how God responded? God apparently asked Augustine, why are you relying upon yourself only to find yourself unreliable? Why are you relying upon yourself only to find yourself unreliable? Friends, seek the communion with God and others that alone can change you and fill you and finally satisfy you. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that we would seek you above all other goods in this life, knowing that this life is limited, that this physical world is not all that we were made for, that we were made for you and we will be restless until we rest in you. So give us that rest that you alone offer, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.